This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Stay tuned and visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. I said when I woke up this morning, I'm at the beach. The sun is shining. All is good. I really wanted to wear my flip-flops just because... But when I went outside, it was like, maybe not. Do we have flip-flops? I see some. Very good. Now, I realize that you missed an hour of sleep last night. And here, I just have one request. Don't make up that hour this hour. Okay? If you don't mind, I'd really like for you to stay awake. Um, I am happy to be here. I do pastor up in Northern Virginia. I've uh, been there most of my life. Uh, have a couple of books out on the book table. One is called 10 Life Choices. I believe that Christianity is an invitation to life. Not about going to heaven, but about having life now that continues through eternity. I went through a period of time in my life where I was struggling with uh, past sexual abuse and depression and addiction. I attempted suicide, spent some time in a psychiatric hospital, and out of that learned what it meant to really choose life every day. So that book is about that journey and about how to choose life. It's actually a um, recovery curriculum. It's used in prison fellowship throughout the nation for folks in prison who are struggling, and we use it as a recovery ministry curriculum at our church. Then I also wrote a devotional book, 365 Days of Life. And for every day of the year, there's a different life choice. Choose life this way today. Choose life this way today. A couple other things out there. If you're interested, but um, this morning, I'm here to talk to you about relationships. Are we up there? There we go. We're going to talk about relationships this morning. And the truth is that we were created for relationships, that God the Father has existed through eternity in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when he created out of relationship, he created us in his image, and he created us for relationship. Relationship plays a huge part in our everyday lives. It has been said that our greatest joy and our greatest pain comes in our relationships with others. If you think about the most meaningful things in your life, you would think about the people. You would think about the relationships. These are all important to us. They're the source of our greatest joy. And as you well know, they can also be the source of our greatest pain. Someone else has said that the problem in relationship occurs because each person is concentrating on what is missing in the other person. Now, I find this to be true, particularly after we say I do at the wedding. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and you know, they come into my office, and they're sitting really close to each other, and we're in love. And I say, well, what's, one of my questions in the initial interview is, what do you think is the greatest strength and the greatest weakness in the other person? Oh, I just can't think of a weakness at all. I said, come back in 10 years. You won't be able to think of a strength. <laughs> because we do tend to focus on what's missing in other people. And that really screws up our relationships because here's the truth. Everybody's missing something. Some people are missing more pieces than others, but everybody's missing something. Our culture elevates relationships. You know, everybody jokes about country music and how it 
depicts relationships. Like there's a song out right now, She Thinks My Tractor's Sexy. What does that have to do with anything? And my kids make fun of country music, but my 16-year-old daughter was playing this song the other day. You know I'd catch a grenade for ya. Throw my hand on a blade for ya. I'd jump in front of a train for ya. Really? No difference, right? All about relationships. All very, very difficult. Some relationships are harder than others, though, aren't they? Just because of the people that are together. You know, you just look at them and you go, how does that work together, right? And uh, some are more classic than others. Sometimes you're looking at two people and say, what was he thinking in entering into this relationship? Uh, things that just don't seem to fit together and you see them together, you think, what in the world? Some relationships are just really, really strange, aren't they? <laughs> and you look at it and you say, how in the world... Does that ever work? Now, the truth is that in the body of Christ, relationships are also very, very important. Jesus hinted in the Gospels that Satan was going to attack the church. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that I'm going to build. Now, if Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail, it meant that he was expecting the gates of hell to try. And more often than not, Satan uses relationships in the church to destroy the church. And we're not just talking about the 21st century. We're talking about from the very beginning. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? You've heard of him, right? He had a really good friend and partner named Barney. Do you remember Barney? And they fought, didn't they? What did they fight over? Relationship. John Mark. And they split up. Because of that relationship. And so relational problems, when Paul writes his his epistles to the Corinthians, when he writes to the Colossians, when he writes to the Philippians, somewhere in there he's talking about, well, you guys got to learn to get along with each other. You got this guy and this guy, come on. You guys got to work this thing out. Because relational problems have always been part of the problem of the church. I always say, if it weren't for people, my job would be so easy. I think pastoring is a lot like cat herding. Trying to get people to move together in a positive direction. Now, the passage we're going to look at, I want you to turn to it this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. The passage, of course, is about relationships. The book of Thessalonians was written to the church at Thessalonica. You may remember that on Paul's missionary journeys, one of the places that he visited was in the northern part of Greece, which was the region of Macedonia. And he went into a place called Philippi. Now, who remembers the big deal that happened in Philippi? What were his accommodations like in Philippi? Do you remember? He was in jail. He got thrown in jail, and he was in the stocks. Now, Barney had already left because they'd already had that big fight, so now he was with Silas. And they were in the jail, and they were singing, and then the jailer got saved. Do you remember all that? But the the crowd was so stirred up in that city that after they ministered in Philippi, they had to get out of there, and they traveled about 100 miles west to this place called Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was the capital city of the region. It was a free Roman city. And so I think Paul had this expectation that everything was going to go smoothly when he got to Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica is still... 
a city there in Macedonia. But when he got to Thessalonica, what happened was there were a large number of people who believed right away, and it caused a stir. The Jewish leaders rose up, and they caused Paul to have to leave Thessalonica after only being there for a couple of weeks. So he'd barely had time to establish these people. But a whole bunch of people had come together, they believed in Christ, and now they had no idea what to do. So after Paul leaves, he goes south to Berea and then to Corinth. He, he picks up his pen and he writes them this letter because they need some instructions. He talks to them about how to please God. He talks to them about the second coming because evidently a, a discussion had happened that people were confused about. And then he closes the book out with this section on relationships. So let's begin the reading at verse 12. He says, now we ask you, brothers, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Now, I don't know if you can tell that Paul starts this kind of in paragraph form, and I think what happens is so many thoughts start to fill his head that he just starts listing them off one at a time. There are so many things about relationships that were important for him to communicate in this time. He starts off, though, by talking to them about relationships between the leaders and the followers. These would be the primary relationships in the church. These would be the relationships that will determine the direction, the success, the viability of any body of Christ, the the relationship between the leaders and their followers. So let's talk about that for a minute. It's interesting the way that Paul defines these leaders. He actually uses, in the Greek language, he uses three participles in a row because he wants them to get a full picture of what leadership really looks like. The first one he says is, he he describes them as the ones who are working hard among you. The ones who are working hard among you. The word for working hard here really means intensive labor. Labor with wearisome toil and effort. Now, when you think of pastoring, you don't usually think of that. You would say, well, that's, that's the um, construction worker who's out there in the heat, you know, do, laying asphalt or, or um, you know, running the jackhammer. That's wearisome, toilsome labor. But pastoring, I mean, I've had people say to me, well, you only work one day a week. So what's the big deal? It's important for us to see that pastoring, that leading a congregation is, is hard work. Because there are children to teach and babies to watch and funds to raise and buildings to maintain and lives to counsel and truth to proclaim and lessons to write and staff to manage and prayers to be offered and programs to be run, sick people to be visited, funerals to hold, weddings to hold, baptisms to hold, there's communion and then there are committees. It's exhausting. 
When the Apostle Paul described this to the church at Corinth, he said that it was the care of the churches that burdened him the most. So here's the first picture that Paul gives us. The picture of a man who's carrying a very heavy burden. And carrying this burden is very wearisome because it's toil. Okay, you got that picture in your head? Hello? Okay, good. The next participle that he uses, the ones who are over you. Literally, the ones who stand before you. And this doesn't speak so much of the, of the work as it does the position. These leaders are the ones who are ruling over you. They're not behind you, pushing you forward on your journey with the Lord. They're in front of you, trying to motivate you forward as a leader among you. And so, this speaks of their spiritual authority. It also speaks of their spiritual responsibility. You know, the book of James tells us that teachers will be held accountable for what they teach. Now, my whole ministry has morphed from the time I first became a pastor. And when I think back over some of the things I said from the pulpit in my earlier years, oh, God, please don't hold me completely accountable for those things. You know, because we grow as well and we mature in our faith and God teaches us things. But we have to be very careful. So you say, well, I would like to stand before everybody. Well, just remember that the people who stand before you are on the front lines of the spiritual battle. So we've got this picture now of this guy who's carrying this heavy weight. Oh, he's, under the, he's under the pressure of that. And at the same time that he's carrying this heavy weight, he's trying to get these people behind him to, to follow with him. Okay, you got the picture? All right, the third participle is the ones who admonish you. Now, this word is nutheteo. If you know anything about counseling, there's nuthetic counseling and rogerian counseling. Rogerian, you just kind of sit there and listen and nod. How does that make you feel? In nuthetic counseling, you confront. Because this is the word for confrontation. So one of the roles of the pastor is to confront. This does not always make the pastor a popular person. Because, because in the position of pastor, you can't just let things go. You absolutely must address them. And people don't like to be addressed. Have you noticed that? Especially when it has to do with their personal lives and with their families. Because I'm involved in recovery ministry, I do a lot of interventions. And so I was about a year ago at an intervention. And, you know, you sit down before the intervention, before the person comes in, everybody decides what their role is. In this particular intervention, I was to be at the door before the escape, okay? Because they said, well, he trusts you the most. So if he starts to run and you're standing there, you're the one who might be able to talk him in. He was a heroin addict. And he had three children and his wife. And it was just everything was falling apart. So I stood at the door. And they did their confrontation, and just as we suspected, he got very, very angry, and he got up to bolt for the door, and I was standing there, and I put my arms out like this, and he flattened me. I mean, he decked me, okay? And then he just stepped over me and went out the door. So, you know, this whole thing of confronting is overrated as far as, you know, being a positive thing. Sometimes leaders... Because they've been hurt like that, they can tend to kind of back off from that. And in Timothy, 
Paul describes them. He says, the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. We can't afford to do that. So this minister, this pastor, this leader is this guy carrying this heavy weight of the churches and he's trying to get everybody to move forward, but now he's also got to watch his back because people are throwing darts at him, right? And so he's got to keep dodging that, you know, as he's confronting and leading and moving forward. So this, this is a difficult thing. And Paul was trying to get these, these Corinthian, I mean, these Thessalonians to understand that. Now, the leaders in this church hadn't been leaders very long. They were novices. Everybody in the church was a novice. It was a young church. And so very important for them to be able to establish these people as leaders. So once he defines them with these three participles, then he starts to say, okay, what is your attitude toward these people supposed to be? The first thing he says is hold them in the highest regard in love. So the very first thing, uh, as far as our attitude is concerned, is loving respect for these people. You know what Ephesians says? Ephesians says that the pastor is actually a gift to the church. Elders and pastors are gifts that God gives to... They're not just jobs. They're not just roles to play. They're actual gifts. And I know that in some churches people say, well, if they're gifts, where's the return desk? But God knows exactly what each church needs. And he brings people with differing skills and differing personalities. And he says, this gift is for the body of Christ at Nags Head Church. Now, if God gives you a gift, are you going to say to him, "Um, I'd rather have something else? We receive what God gives to us. And we respect it. Even if there are times when we don't respect the person themselves because of something they've said or something they've done, we respect them because they're the gift of God to the congregation. And we love them with our hearts. Now, it's not necessary to always agree or appreciate their style. I have a lot of people in my church who do not appreciate my style. You know, Pastor Bob, why can't you just be a little less aggressive? You know? A little less passionate. Why are you so passionate all the time? Hey, it's how God wired me. It's my role. And so sometimes we don't like what they do or how they do it. And we do not have to agree with them. But we, what happens in churches, we have so many sideline coaches. I know you've been to the, to the ball games where the coach who's paid, who's a professional, who's supposed to know what he's doing. And everybody on the sidelines is calling him an idiot. Okay, if I were the coach, why would we this person, put this person in? Guess what? You're not the coach. And do you know why? Because you have no idea what you're talking about. Okay, because you've never been in that position with that kind of pressure, with with 30, 40, 50,000 people looking at you. You've never been there before. So don't tell me that you can do a better job. But this happens all the time. I want to remind you on this point That pastors, elders, have feelings. I know this is really difficult for you to understand. They have feelings. And when people walk away from them, guess what? It hurts. It hurts when people walk away. I remember just maybe two months ago, a family came to me and they said, Pastor, we've decided to go elsewhere. 
which I'm okay with because I believe the body of Christ is big and uh, our church isn't for everybody, so okay, fine. But here's what they said. Now, don't take it personally, but we just don't feel we're being spiritually fed here. Now, how do I not take that personally? (laughs) I'm the one feeding, okay? And you're not being fed, so yeah, that hurts, you know? Because we, we are people, and we don't like to be walked away from. I remember a few years ago, as kind of an illustration, I went out to California for a conference, and I have a, a medical condition that causes a lot of arthritis pain. So I'd been on the airplane, and so I was really stiff, got to the hotel, and I noticed that I had several hours before the first session, and they had a hot tub. Well, hot tub is my friend. By the way, there's one at the beach house I'm staying at. So if you need to find me this afternoon, okay, that's where I'll be. So I decided I was going to go to the hot tub, so I got my swim trunks on, I had a t-shirt, got my towel, going down to the hot tub. And as I'm going, I'm thinking, God, please help the hot tub be empty. You know, because I'm, I'm self-conscious, you know. I frankly look better with my clothes on. So I get to the hot tub enclosure, and I open the door. There are three women in the hot tub, okay? And as soon as I open the door, they lock eyes with me. So I'm self-conscious, you know? I'm a person, I have feelings. And they're staring at me, so I get really nervous. I take my T-shirt off really fast and throw it over the fence, and then I jump down into the, you know, so I can have the water up to here, right? Problem is, I jumped in too fast. So my trunk's filled with air. So now I'm kind of bobbing on the top of the hot tub, like this. And they're staring at me, so I'm self-conscious. So I said, well, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna press down on my shorts slowly so that the bubbles will match the bubbles that are coming up in the hot tub. But they're staring at me, so I got nervous, and I pressed too hard. This big bubble comes up in the middle, and their eyes got really big, and then I didn't know what to say at all, so I just said, excuse me. (laughs) Now they're getting out of the hot tub, and I try to salvage the situation. I said, no, no, it's okay. I was just releasing air. (laughs) So now I'm sitting in the hot tub all alone, feeling rejected. Pastors have feelings. They don't like to be walked away from. And so this idea of treating them with loving respect. Now I said you don't have to agree with them all the time. And you know what? Scripture has this wonderful passage that talks about what to do if you don't agree with somebody. And did you know that it doesn't involve going to somebody else and telling them? Did you know that? It's not in there. It says if you disagree with somebody in the body, would you just go to them and in love say, really struggling with this. If we do it any other way, it's sin. It's divisive. It's the enemy trying to destroy the body through relationships. Loving, respect. Then he says to live in peace with each other. This idea of living in harmony, learning to get along. You know that out in the world, in the business world particularly, it's a dog-eat-dog world, but in the church it's sheep-eat-sheep, and they do it all the time. I said in our initial uh, discussion that the problem with relationships is that we end up focusing on what's missing in the other person, and this is what causes us not to be able to live in harmony because we're, we're looking on something that is an inadequacy in the other people. I don't know all of the elders and pastors of your church intimately, so I couldn't say, but I do know this, they all have inadequacies, okay? 
They all have shortcomings. They all have flesh patterns that have developed in them that are going to show themselves from time to time because we all do. And in order to live in harmony, we can't focus on those things. Leaders who are constantly criticized are in danger of being distracted from leading. Remember the picture, right? You're holding the heavy weight, right? You're trying to get people to come forward. Well, if you're constantly having to turn around because you're afraid you're going to get stabbed in the back, it definitely compromises your ability to move forward. So churches do what Israel did. They wander in the wilderness because the leader is not free to move the congregation forward. So this is Paul's advice to them in relationship to their leadership. Now, this is really scary that you put me up here. Is there a clock? Oh, there is a clock right there. Okay, I'm good now. I need to get my bearings. Um, the next part of the, of the um, passage is actually kind of shifting now from the follower leader to the relationships within the church itself, the peers. So this is everybody with everybody. Before we move on to that, though, I want us to think about this idea of the elders, the pastors being gifts. Now, this is what God says, right? And maybe you've never thought of that before. But when somebody gives you a gift, what's the proper response? Right. You know, I imagine that when, when you guys are at a ball game or something, and, and you, something happens that you really like and you agree with it, you don't go, thank you. You say, thank you. Right? So, if somebody gives you a gift, what do you do? You say, thank you. So, I want to call the elders who are here to come stand right here. Where are they? Here's Rick. Here's Andy. Are uh, Steve and Nathan not in here? Oh, Steve. And who else? Nathan's not in Okay. Steve's around somewhere. He's trying to get people to follow him. He's trying to get people to And he's watching for darts in his back. All right, here's what I want you to do. Put your stuff down and come up here. You guys move up there right there. And I want you to surround them. All right? And we're going we're gonna to offer thanks. This is not a stoning, I promise. Okay? <laughs> I want you to look at these two guys in the center, and I want you to imagine the other ones who aren't here. I want you to look at them, and I want you to think of them as a gift, as a gift to you. And not just a gift that somebody gave you, but a gift that your loving Father has presented you with. Hey, church, Nagshead Church, here is the gift that I'm giving to you to lead you forward on your journey with God. Okay? You got it? All right, move in. Put your hands on them so they know you're there, so they don't feel isolated and all alone. Touch them. All right, let me pray. Lord, we thank you. You love us so much that you give. We know that you give good gifts because you gave your son. You gave us life. You gave us grace. You gave us hope. And then, Lord, on this human level in these relational areas, you've given us these leaders, pastors, elders, who have this tremendous responsibility to lead this church forward to carry the burden of the spiritual welfare of others. And Lord, you knew exactly who needed to be here. You know their strengths, you know their weaknesses, you know their flesh, you know the strength and passion of their spirit. And you've uniquely crafted this team 
So Lord, I pray as this congregation gathers around their leaders, that they would right now in their hearts be saying, thank you, God, for this gift. And if there are people who are standing here who are struggling to be thankful, Lord, remind them to stop focusing on what's missing and focusing on what's there. Thank you for your gift to this church. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, thank you. See how obedient they were, Rick? I mean, I said, come up here. They came up here. I said, put your hands on. They put their hands on. They're they're good people, right? All right, as he moves on now in the passage, he moves past the leader-follower to the peer relationships, okay? These are the relationships that you have with each other. And he says in verse 14, kind of changing the topic here, we urge you, brothers, this, this idea is that there's something that's coming that's really important. So he's like clicking his fingers. Come on, guys, this is what I want to tell you about. And he's getting ready to kind of give them a list of action items that relate to the relationships that we have with each other. The first thing he says is, I want you to warn those who are idle. Now, the word warn there is the exact same word that he used of the elders. It's nutheteo. It's confront. And so when you see somebody who's idle, the word idle here is a military term that is used of soldiers who get out of rank who start to wander off course. So as you're here in the body of Christ and you see somebody and you you notice that they're kind of wandering. Oh, you know what? I haven't seen so-and-so in about three weeks. I haven't seen so-and-so in about a month. I haven't, you know, so-and-so used to be so active and now something's going on with them. It says, confront them. Now, it doesn't mean to go smack them, okay? It means to gently invite them back in, to come alongside of them, Warn those who are idle. And secondly, it says, encourage the timid. Encourage the timid. The word encourage here is the word for comfort. It's to relate a tale, to tell a story, to speak the truth, to be kind of a cheerleader for people who are timid, people who are little-spirited, people who lack courage. You know that some people can push through problems pretty well. And other people, they just get blindsided so quickly. And so people who lack that kind of ability to push through, they can't push through on their own. That's why God puts us in the body of Christ. So we come up alongside those people and we help them push through their problem by not focusing on their problem with them, but focusing on the solution and focusing on God as the source. So you send them a card, you put a hand on their shoulder, you pray with them. You meet with them on a regular basis. You don't criticize them. You don't belittle them. You don't disdain them because they can't seem to get over. When are they going to get over it? You know, sometimes it's difficult for some people to get over things because they're timid in their spirit. Thirdly, he says, help the weak. Help them. Literally hold on to the weak. Hold them up. Don't don't look at the weak and say, well, they just haven't progressed in their spiritual life the way I have. No, go to them and hold them up. The weak are the strengthless. You know, Scripture says, bear one another's burdens. Come alongside them. 
Then he says, be patient with everyone. I wish he hadn't put that one in there. Okay? I'm pretty good at those top three, but man, that last one. If you're, if you're a very passionate person, if you're an aggressive person, then patience is not one of your strong points, usually. When I was going through uh, Bible college, I worked as a teller in a bank. And inevitably, especially on Saturdays, you know, we'd get a long line of people. And did you know that people don't like to wait in line? Have you noticed that about people? And they want to yell at somebody. They want to take it out on somebody. So this one particular Saturday, um, I was at the teller booth. And, you know, things weren't going smoothly. So the line was backed up and people had to wait and they were irritated. And there was this one woman in the line and you could see her huffing and puffing. And then she would make statements like, hello, when are we going to move? You know, that kind of stuff. She was very loud and, and uh, obnoxious. And, and I was, yeah, yeah, you know, ugh. So she came to my window. She was a heavy woman. And I said to her, I'm sorry about your weight. <laughs> that was the loving thing to say, don't you think? It ministered to my flesh so well. But I wouldn't say that was being patient, okay? Patience. Is this idea of being long-tempered, of being thick-skinned. Okay, they, they, they offended me, they hurt me, they, they said that again. I can let it go. I'm thick-skinned. Church splits, divisions, schisms happen because we're not patient with each other. We're not thick-skinned. We have an expectation that people would never hurt us. And so when they do hurt us, we want to exclude them. But do you know that if I'm secure in who I am in Christ, and I know who I am and my value in him, that if somebody else devalues me, I I can survive that. And if I can't survive that, then what that means is that I'm not secure enough in who I am, that I'm allowing somebody else to communicate value to me. Instead of to God. I've given up my power card. And I've let somebody else have power over me. So he says, I want you to be patient with everyone. Now I'm going to let you define everyone. Do you think you could do that? You know the person that you would rather not sit beside in church? That's part of the everyone. Everyone means everyone. I know with some people, I end up saying things like, how many times do we have to go through this? What's the answer to that question? Every time. <laughs> you like with your kids, how many times do I have to tell you? There's no answer to that. You just have to keep telling. And so that's our role in our relationships with each other. So how are you doing? Think about your peer relationships in the church. Are you warning, encouraging, helping, and being patient? Use it as kind of a checklist. Eh, well, so one out of four is not so bad. It just means we need to improve. We need to work on our relationships. All right, now he continues on in the passage, but he's kind of moving away from actions now. He says, um, make sure. This is introducing a new topic. He's shifting from actions now to our attitudes So, if you were doing okay with actions, okay, I'm doing all the right things. Now he's saying, I want you to think about the attitude with which you do those things. And first he says, um, don't pay back wrong for wrong, but be kind. Now that means that the foundation of your relationships has to be grace. And that you have to approach relationship from 
the vantage point of grace. If you say, God, I could just never forgive that person for what they did, then put yourself in the place of Christ who on the cross looked at the men who put him there and said, Father, forgive them. Christ, who forgave his own executioners, lives in you. You have the power to forgive everyone. You never have to repay somebody for the wrong that they've done to you. You can let it go. Your relationships can, at their foundation, be filled with grace. Last Monday, my wife and I celebrated 35 years of marriage. And I'm only 42, so... Now, that relationship, let me just tell you something. If there weren't grace in that relationship, (laughs) she'd have left me a long time ago. In order for relationships to stand, there has to be an attitude of grace for one another, extending grace. Then he says, be joyful always. So there needs to be this kind of attitude of joy. And I realize that for some people that's more difficult than others because you kind of have this negative Ned personality where you're always kind of down in the mouth and whatever. But the truth is that the joy of the Lord is also inside of you. Well, you know, it's just my personality, kind of like Eeyore. We can't all, and some of us don't. All right, that's your flesh. Yeah, you were probably born that way. You were probably raised that way. You probably developed that way as you were growing up. But you became a whole new person when Christ came in. And guess what? There's some joy in there. Maybe you need to find it. Dig deep. Connect with it. All right? Be positive. It's there. Then he says, pray continually. Now, this does not mean go, it basically means just be aware of your connection to God at all times, practicing the presence of God. Okay, God, you're here. I figure you're here. And just constantly being able to sense the presence of God. It's an attitude of prayer. Then he said, give thanks in all circumstances. It's interesting that the word for grace is the word charis, and the word for thanksgiving is eucharisteo. It's to be well-graced. So we develop a thankful heart when we recognize that we have been well-graced. I have been the recipient of so much grace that there's nothing I can do but be thankful for it. It's like, God, I really don't deserve to be where I am. I don't deserve to have what I have. I don't deserve to have a relationship with you, and I'm going to live forever in your presence. I don't deserve any of that. I have received so much grace. When I think about what I've received... That's where Eucharisteo comes from, the attitude of thankfulness. Then he says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. And and what that literally means is just allow yourself to be Spirit-filled. Now, what is it that puts out the Spirit's fire quicker than anything else? It's your flesh. And we all have it. If we begin to develop our own flesh patterns and understand what they are, for instance, okay, I know that I tend to be impatient, And I know that I tend to be sarcastic. In fact, for a while in my Christian life, I thought sarcasm was my spiritual gift. Okay? So I know that these are my tendencies. So when I get in a situation, if I begin to act impatiently or I begin to be sarcastic with someone, immediately I say, that's my flesh, that's not the spirit in me. Because I know my own patterns. So in our relationships with each other, if we relate to each other out of the flesh, we're going to have conflicts. If we relate to ourselves out of the attitude of the spirit, then we're going to have harmony. Then he says, um, don't treat prophecies with contempt. And that just means take 
God's word and make your relationships based on an attitude of truth. What is really right here? Not how do I feel, what do I want, how do I like it, but truth. Then he says, test everything. So you're not going to be gullible with people. You're not going to believe every story that everybody tells you. You're going to have a spirit and an attitude of discernment as you relate to one another in the body of Christ. Hold on to the good and avoid the evil. There has to be uh, an attitude of purity. Avoiding what is evil in these relationships and uh, looking for what is good. Okay, so we already had the four checklist, right? You got the, you got the leader follower thing down, right? You know how to treat them. Now you've got these action items, these four action items. Okay, I got to do that, I got to do that, I got to do that. And while I'm doing that, okay, let me check my motive. I got to be grace-filled, I got to be joy-filled, I got to be... Oh, oh, I'm exhausted, are you? My, my congregation often calls me PB for Pastor Bob. And I have this one group of younger people who are always saying to me, OMG, PB, you know, like, really? What am I supposed to do with all this you're telling me? If you think that you can pull off these relationships on your own, you're really going to screw it up, okay? Because within ourselves, we are just flat hard to get along with. I could probably spend a day with each of you, and I could, I could make a list of things that I don't like about you. And you could make a list of things you don't like about me. Because that's how our flesh operates. We can't pull this thing off. Sometimes we say, well, I'm just going to try harder. Okay, so that's impossible. (laughs) And everything that Paul has written in this passage is impossible. We can't do it. Not in our own strength. We can't lead. We can't follow. We can't relate. And so he ends the passage. May God himself... The God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. I want you to envision every relationship in your life by this little triangle here. There are three individuals in every relationship that you have. Two of those individuals are variables. And one is a constant. You don't want to make the variable your source. Because you may go to the source one time and it's changed. It's no longer available to you in that way. This works particularly in husband and wife relationships. I'm depending on my wife for my sense of value. You know, there are some days that she just flat doesn't value me very much. And so... I'm let down. But she is not my source. God is my source. And so whenever I can't get what I need out of this person or I'm not receiving what I think I should receive out of this person or I don't think I can give to this person what I think they need, then I have to go to God with it. Because I can't change other people. I can't make them be what I want them to be. But I can definitely go to God. One of the things about my wife and I is that my wife... 35 years now, she is slow. Okay, that woman is so slow. I do everything fast. She does everything slow. So we go to the mall. We pull into the parking lot, okay? I get out of the car. I go to the door of the mall. I hold the door open, and I look back. She's still in the car. Only God knows what she's doing at this point. I mean, I have no idea. How long does it take to get out of a car? 
So I stand at the door. Now, after 35 years, I have learned this. I'm not going to say a word to her. But I stand at the door, and I lift my head up. I say, dear God, speed that woman up. Okay? She's in the car. Dear God, slow that man down. Because we're not looking to each other anymore for that. We're just venting it to him as the source. And then we let it go. And then by the time she gets to the door, oh, let's go. Let's go shopping. She shops slow too, though. It's just, mm. (laughs) that's why I pray without ceasing, you know. But God is the source. So in every relationship, when the relationship starts to get difficult, before you do anything, go to the source. All right, God, I'm going to need a little extra grace for Pastor Rick this week, all right? I don't know what got into him, but oh, okay. But God is the source of that extra grace. I'm going to need a, I'm, I'm going to need a little extra patience with Sister So-and-so. If she says that to me one more time, okay, you know who the source of patience is, right? You go to the source. So I think it's really interesting that Paul is talking to this fledgling church and he, and he doesn't want them to be destroyed by relationships. He starts by laying the foundation for these leader relationships and how important that is. And then he goes into how all these other relationships are so important. And then in the end he says, but you can't do it yourself. Listen, God's the source. You've got to depend on him. What a place to end the book, right? And this is where we end this morning. If we want our relationships to honor God, if we want our lives and our churches to move forward together as the body of Christ, then we're going to have to depend on him to do it. Let me pray with you. Lord, you love us. And you put us in the body together on purpose. And you want this body to grow, not just in numbers, but also to grow in their walk with you, in the depth of their relationship with you. And, Lord, it could be threatened by relationships. So right now, Lord, we surrender to you these relationships. And we ask that, Lord, you would be our source for getting along with each other, for supporting our leaders, and for loving each other in a gracious way. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church, reaching people to discover life in Christ. Visit us on the internet at nagsheadchurch.org.